Welcome to the Three Priests Walk in a Bar podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to our regular bi-weekly installment of the Three Priests Walk in a Bar podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, just by way of introduction, we are not going to be talking about one topic necessarily, but really about as many as we can possibly fit into the space of just about an hour or so. Today, we're going to be talking about common misconceptions about the various traditions that are represented in the podcast. Some of the questions that we'll cover include, was Henry VIII really just looking for a divorce? Going back all the way to our first episode. Um, Do the Orthodox Christians worship icons? And what do we make of those odd writings, those odd, really hateful anti-Semitic writings that Martin Luther produced towards the end of his life? How do we reconcile that with the Lutheran Church today? All these questions and more on today's lightning round episode of Common Misconceptions on Three Priests Walk in a Bar. All right. No time for introductions. We're right back to it today. <laughs> that's the that's my big radio announcement uh announcement. But what the, are we right back to? Are we ever up to anything? <laughs> just general general mischief is all. <laughs> what did you just do? Dropped my bottle opener on my foot. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Before anything else happens, before the roof comes down, collapsing on Father Adam, we are back with your regular bi-weekly installment of Three Priests Walk in a Bar, where we got to keep it on a shorter leash today, gentlemen, because I have a, uh, I have a class to get to at church at, at 7 o'clock, and it's currently... 520 and it takes me a half hour to get there so is this we'll the see how where they teach you that anglicanism is a doorway a gateway direct to orthodoxy they may we haven't gotten to that part yet <laughs> I, I was gonna say if you were more christian you wouldn't need the class that's what everyone else thinks <laughs> <laughs> why christian is always very low attended everyone oh, i don't need that class <laughs> oh goodness My time in seminary was spent saying oh wait what <laughs> <laughs> right don't let the metropolitan hear that <laughs> That's just because the Orthodox have no class. Mm. Down the gauntlet. Look at him. I'm gonna get some sound effects. I need, I need to have my ham horn sound effect like at the ready for these things, but I don't actually know where it is on my phone. Uh, I'm not gonna spend time looking for it. All right, let's let's go around. Let's let's say what we're what we're imbibing, and then we'll we'll jump right to it. It's gonna be a. It, We'll we'll see how many buttons we can push today in today's episode, because it uh, it could be it could be pretty interesting. Um, I saw Father Adam was drinking something fairly clear. It looked like oh, that's just oh, bold rock. I thought it was I thought it was literally a bottle of of Smirnoff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not that I wouldn't. You know, given the right circumstances open up a bottle of something like that it would never be smeared off it would always be something much more quality uh, <laughs> you want to tell everyone that can't see the video what you do have oh sorry this is bold rock hard apple cider uh uh virginia apple uh, uh, granny smith that's a good one i really like that one good it's not too sweet it's it's kind of tart and crisp 
and it's a ABV of I think four and a half or something like that. Bold Rock is a good uh, is a good just Virginia company. Yeah, Nellysburg, Virginia, out uh, west of Charlottesville. I think they have a they have a um, I guess a, a physical location in uh, at Carter's Mountain. Yeah, that's not far from uh, Nellysburg. I mean, it's all Charlottesville ish. Yeah. Yep. I guess Nelson County. Nice little facility if anyone gets the chance to go out there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Father Nick, I saw you were you were having one of the ones that we uh, that Ginny, who um, I w- I don't know what I was about to say. I was about to say of blessed memory, but she, she's she is still with us. Ginny, <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this, we know you're still with us. Um, but yeah, thank you for the for the bruise. What's that? If Ginny were to have an untimely death anytime in the near future, we were, it's all on you. <laughs> oh, what what so what are, what do you have uh what do you have, Father Nick? Yeah, so I've I've got one of uh Ginny's beers that is one of the beers that uh Ginny sent our way uh for uh International Buy a Priest a Beer Day and uh which was last month, September and September. What's the exact date, Pastor Lou? Oh, don't test me. <laughs> you got to know this. You said you've been peddling this for like eight years. Is it the ninth? I think it's so. his favorite um, great feast of the church. Yeah, I know. I should do better. Um, hey, I was right. It's the ninth. Yay. So anyway, this is an, an Elysian uh, pumpkin chino uh, coffee pumpkin ale. That's oh. right up your alley. Yeah. How is it? It's, you know, it's good. It's good. I had one of those last night and I liked it, but of the four or five varieties that she sent, that was the one I liked the least, but I liked it very much. If that makes sense. Well, it's, oh, yeah. it's got coffee in it. So that's father Nick's. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pastor Lou. Well, look at this beautiful color. I don't know if it shows well. Ooh, nice. Ooh, it's a nice amber color. color. I like that. It matches the can. <laughs> What uh, what does that say? Narragansett. Oh, it's their it's their fest lager. It's a a, a Martin lager, and I've not had it before. But I was trying to pick up a few things for Oktoberfest beers while we're nice. in October, and uh, and that's what I got. Oh, and I got a surprise to show you too. I, I'm gonna you talk amongst yourselves. I'll be back. You do actually have to. Oh, he actually has to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's that's all right. We don't need him. Go ahead. No, we don't. We don't. <laughs> I have. I, I too received some of some of Ginny's brews, and I'm excited to try them. Um, I think I've got the uh, the great pumpkin. There's one. One's the the darkest night, or like the the, the stout that that Adam had. Oh yeah, that um, was good. So I'm looking forward to to trying some of these. Hey, did you get the night owl too? Yes, that's the one. I think that was the tops that one was so good i'm excited for I that highly one. oh wait what is this what is he zicky zaki zicky zaki <laughs> got another hat for those at home that can't see I, I meant to put it on but with the uh, boomers demands upon me my dog's demands upon me taking for a walk before we began i forgot it but nice i don't think i'll be doing a hat every single time i'm not nick 40 but or 40 40 <laughs> Nick Forty, as we uh, as we learned in our Nick live thing. Nick Forty ounce, that's a good name. Nick Forty ounce. 
Oh, that's good. I like that. Um, all right. Well, me. Sticking. I don't have anything exciting. I actually don't. I'm not drinking drinking beer right now. I just have a, a cold brew, a nitro cold brew from Starbucks, and I'm not drinking because alcohol makes me tired, and I need to be up for this class, and I needed the caffeine. Okay, so you so. have what the class is. What is this class? Oh, it's it's um, it's called a foundations class. So it's just sort of introduction into um, it's it's more for people who are looking to join the church, um, but it's a really nice, just kind of solid foundations of like practices of the Christian life. Not necessarily. You failed the first time. Since. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> this is Anglican re-education camp, basically. <laughs> no, but but uh, Sarah is taking it, and so it, it's been completely restructured since I took it back in like January. So I'm just I'm just taking it again because it's it's a good class. It's it's introduced me to um, you know how to use things like the Book of Common Prayer, um, just good practices to to have in in the everyday Christian life. But yeah, I'm not I'm not drinking right now. But yesterday we did all get together, and I did part uh, partake as everyone else did in some El Duterino. Oh yeah, which is a yes. uh, a tell white the, Russian stout. Tell the good folks all about it. Yes, that is stout. right. Do what? Well, did they call it a Russian milk stout or? A... It was just called a white Russian stout, and it may have been a milk stout. I, I can't remember. Um, was... but that is from a, a a brewery in Ashland, Virginia, called Center of the Universe Brewing. Ashland thinks it's like literally thinks it's the center of the universe. I'm not sure why, but we kind of all go with it. And they released Ashland beefed with another town that tried to claim center of the universe. And I don't know if it was copyrighted for Ashland, but uh, it was in some other state. And uh, I, I don't know if the city of Ashland wrote to that town and said, you can't claim that because that's us. <laughs> wow. Petty feuds everywhere. Which is why we call St. Andrews the center of the center of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Who does Ashland well, think they are? Yeah. Church? That, the Orthodox. That, makes, that makes Father Adam the black hole. <laughs> I like that. All right. Father Adam is the black hole at the center of the universe. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> but we did all go get something from Center of the Universe Brewing. It was a white Russian stout in um, tribute to the Big Lebowski, which has become just sort of a... Uh, a group favorite, even though I've never actually seen the movie. I watched it last night, Tweet Baby Nick. I, I, so did Lou, apparently. I, 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 it's to my shame that I haven't seen it. I, I, I agree. But because you're going to these stupid classes, you should stay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll learn more from the Big Lebowski than you will from, from <laughs> <Anglican> Education Camp. <laughs> it's on my list of movies to see. Um, I'm, I, I loved seeing that. Uh, the scene where they're like spreading the guy's ashes and the wind blows it back into his the guy's face and he doesn't he doesn't budge he doesn't move one bit i love it um the dude abides the dude abides so that was that was good to good to see everybody yesterday in person and and have some of that socially um, distanced and masked just yes we were all we were being very responsible yeah first time in 7 months Mm-hmm. Yeah, that guys, that was much needed. It, it was. was good to be, share the same socially distanced space with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. It was good. 
So we are going to jump right into our topic for today. Today we are sort of tying up some loose ends with some things that might have come in in other episodes because there's all kinds of different things we think the other person might believe just based on their their tradition and their denomination. So today we are going to take some time to clear the air and deal with common misconceptions of our various traditions. So I'm sure I could think of a few common misconceptions, but I don't know if you want me to toss them out or if y'all want to, because I've got, there's this looming, this large looming Henry VIII in the back that I really, really want to bring up. Does that mean now I should start? You, you've already introduced uh, Good King Henry. Or, or Lou's <laughs> ready to jump in? Is that it? Uh, uh, I, I was just waiting to pull out the historical uh, scholarship that indicates that that's part of the reason. So I, I guess you. <laughs> Well, let's well let's go ahead since I have already brought that up. Let's 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 start with with Nick and and I'll, maybe I'll bring up one misconception and you can if that leads into some others. So the big misconception, or at least supposed misconception, um, preconceived notion, if you will, of the <laughs> of the Church of England, the Episcopal Church in the USA, is that as I stated in our very first episode was started because King Henry VIII wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't give it to him. So he said, screw you, I'm gonna do it myself. That is basically how I understand it. That is basically how most of the world understands it. I would love to hear why this is a misconception. Nick, Nick is he's toying with his, his beard as if he's thinking about how he's gonna, <laughs> gonna kill you. <laughs> this is actually, from my perspective, the least interesting misconception people have about the Episcopal Church and Anglicanism in general. But, but we have to deal with it because there there was Henry VIII standing behind you, looming over the conversation. And so <laughs> it's this really ominous presence. That's right. Everything smells like a turkey leg. Since our very first <laughs> podcast episode, he's been standing there. <laughs> All right, so a couple things. One, Henry VIII didn't want a divorce because he was a Roman Catholic, and Roman Catholics did not believe in divorce. Uh, and indeed, at that time, uh, most Protestants didn't believe in divorce either. Luther was dead set against divorce. So divorce wasn't even really an option. Uh, but what was an option, and what princes and kings and did all the time in the medieval world, is petition the Pope for an annulment. Now, if you're Roman Catholic today, and you want to be a fully active member of your church, your parish church, and, and take communion and all this kind of stuff, you and, and your marriage is ending or has ended, uh, you can't get a divorce uh, unless you have to. I mean, you can legally get a divorce, but but you have to apply to the Roman Catholic Church for an annulment for you to continue to be a uh, fully practicing Roman Catholic uh, because the Catholic Church is still against divorce. Henry VIII 
when he was married to uh, to his first wife, to Catherine, he wanted an annulment, and he had an he had an argument, a theological argument for why he should have the annulment. Namely, she was the wife of his uh, older brother Arthur first, uh, and Arthur died, and then she got married to to Henry, and he said that this. Uh, went against Levitical, uh, the Levitical code that uh, brother shall not take his uh, brother's wife in marriage. Uh, now, is it true that this was only after she would not, or they would not produce a male heir? Yeah, yeah, this is much later, right? I mean, it, it, he was being, look, let's let's not make any mistake. King, Re, King Henry VIII was a jackass. I mean, he was a jerk, right? And he okay, was, as long as we've got that out in the open. <laughs> he wanted a male heir, and she was not providing a male heir, and she was older than him, and she was getting too old, and so he applied. And the said, old gray Mary ain't what she used to be. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing: he thought that, and I think I think he sincerely thought this. He thought that he had sinned by marrying his brother's wife, and that God's punishment on him for doing that was that he was not able to produce through that marriage a male heir, a boy child, right? That's That was his take on it. I think he really believed that. It doesn't change the fact that he was a jerk, but I think he really did believe that. And so he applied for an annulment. Now, from the perspective of the Roman Catholic Church, which never granted him the annulment, the Pope never gave him the annulment because of all sorts of political machinations at the time that we don't need to get into. Uh, he did divorce her from in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church. In his own eyes and in the eyes of the clergy of the church in England, he was granted an annulment. And so he so it was considered as if he had never been married to her. Now now, here's the thing. That's that's one side. The, the other side of that is that, uh, yes, Henry broke from the uh, Roman church, from the pope, over this issue. He wanted autonomy over the church in England uh, and was willing to go against the pope for that. But to say that that's the beginning of Anglicanism is like saying that um, the, the Duke of Elector Saxony was the one who truly started the Reformation in, in Wittenberg because uh, he went against the Pope's decree to hand over Martin Luther uh, for trial and execution, right? That's not the way the, the Reformation got started in Germany. That's just thank God that the the elector Duke of the Duke of Elector Saxony was willing to resist politically the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, so Luther could start the Reformation in Germany. Similarly, thank God that you had this jerk named King Henry VIII, who, for his own reasons, just like the Duke of Elector Saxony, who never left the Catholic Church. Uh, Henry VIII had his own political reasons for supporting a reformation to some extent within his realm to begin, uh, and, and that's how you end up with Anglicanism. But here, here's the thing. The reason why we all remember Henry VIII 
and not, for example, Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, who truly began the Reformation in England, is because Thomas Cranmer was a bore. He was just an academic who got the thing going in England, and nobody really cares about him. There's been several biographies, but nobody reads those biographies because he, he, he just isn't interesting. Henry VIII is an interesting guy because he's such a jerk, and he's <laughs> loud about being a jerk in the same way that nobody really cares about the Duke of Elector Saxony because he was basically a bore. <laughs> Everybody loves to talk about Martin Luther because Martin Luther could be an awesome jerk and, <laughs> and wrote and wrote really pithy things and, and, and really made a name. Luther was a celebrity in his day. Henry VIII was a celebrity in his day. Hence, we all think about Henry VIII and Luther instead of Thomas Cranmer and the Duke of Elector Saxony. He keeps trying to bring poor old Luther into his King Henry mess. <laughs> it's really setting us up. Okay, so I think that's, I think that's a good, a good, uh, a kind of concise way of, of of looking at that. So I'm I'm curious, kind of in in line with that, how much then was this this break, the the theological distinction that this break produced? How much was that influenced by? European continental Protestantism. So like you've got Luther and you got the reformers doing his thing. Was the break in the Church of England completely separate? Was it influenced? How did it happen? Like what what happened there? It was deeply influenced by, by what was, I mean, so here's the thing. Cranmer went to Germany uh, at, at, um, at the behest of Henry. Uh, and there he married uh, one of the, I think, daughters of, daughter or niece of one of the main uh, Wittenberg reformers. And I'm trying to remember, uh, was it? Cranmer himself married? Yeah. Osiander, I think. I can't remember. Anyway, it was one of the, the Wittenberg reformers. He married the, the daughter or the niece of, of that reformer. He had to hide that from Henry VIII because Henry VIII never accepted uh, clerical marriage. Right, because Henry VIII was basically a Roman Catholic till the day he died. He just wanted control of the church within his realm. But but uh, Cramer was first deeply influenced by Luther, and then later, as the Reformation in England continued, more and more um, of the um, more uh, Lou just uh, let let us know that it was Osiander. So. Um, <laughs> All right, you guys with your chatting. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, where, where was I? Oh yeah, it's <laughs> sorry. Was, Wait, let me cut in. He, <clears throat> Lou, put in the Zoom chat Osiander, and I, I distracted everybody by saying Coriander. That's literally all that happened. All right. Which, well, by the way, is the seed the of cilantro. There you go. And that has nothing to do with the Reformation. Nothing at all. <laughs> but it tastes like soap. As the Reformation in England continued under Edward VI and then later under um, uh, Elizabeth I or Elizabeth Tudor, uh, other influences from the Continental Reformation came in. Influences from Peter Martyr Vermehi, uh, Martin Bucer, um, but also uh, from John Calvin. Uh, in fact, I think that there was a... Uh, 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 correspondence between 
Cramer, if not Cramer, than other uh, English reformers and, and John Calvin. So, so there was a massive debt that the English Reformation owes to the Continental Reformation. And really, they shouldn't be seen as two separate things, though they're often treated that way. But it's really one big uh, kind of collection of reformations throughout Europe, including on the, on the, uh, the British Isles. But a lot of the Episcopalians in the U.S. don't like to even consider that there's a relationship. That's right. So that would right, and that's that's a misconception within right. yeah. our church itself. Yeah, yeah. So here's so here's another uh, another one that's kind of I won't go too deep into this because we're and I know we're we're on a short leash. After this, we'll probably jump to some other people. This is very popular level misconception. Interesting misconception. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I, I think of um, the idea that the British monarch is technically the head of the Church of England. How much does Queen Elizabeth influence your theology? <laughs> no, so so this is actually, this is important. Uh, oh, yeah, I hit on a, an important one. Yeah, Henry VIII <laughs> uh, called himself uh, in the act of supremacy uh, he labeled himself the head of the Church of England. Um, of course, uh, that was rejected by his daughter Mary, um, Queen Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary, as, as she's sometimes called, though Roman Catholics don't like that name for her. Um, but when Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor, ascended to the throne, um, and she reinstated the act of supremacy. She changed the language. So the monarch is not actually the head of the Church of England. Still has, uh, within the realm of England itself, still has uh, a role in appointing bishops, and uh, particularly archbishops and bishops, but, but, um, but is not, in fact, the head of the church. There is another title. I forget what the title is. But that's only true for the Church of England. So that, that's not true for the other churches in the Anglican Communion. So that, I think it's Grand Poobah. I, I believe that's <laughs> plenty of sense. Hit the nail on the head with that one. Is there, um, is there another misconception that you would like to bring up in just, in just a few minutes? Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll do one. I mean, you know, there, there's a few that, that I could tackle, but the, maybe the main one that I, I, I would want to lift up is that... Um, both within the Episcopal Church uh, and even from those outside of the church, uh, there's a, a sense that, um, or a misconception that we're not concerned for, with doctrine, uh, with, with having a body of doctrine, with holding people accountable to doctrine, that doctrine really doesn't play a part. In fact, one of the things that I heard myself as I went through seminary, not from the professors per se, but from other students, uh, and I've heard from, from fellow clergy, is that uh, in the Episcopal Church and in Anglicanism more generally, uh, that we're more concerned about common prayer than common doctrine, uh, and that this is represented in the fact that in the English Reformation, we didn't produce a confession like, say, the Augsburg Confession or the Westminster Confession, uh, but we produced a prayer book. And so, uh, you know, 
taking the old adage uh, of lex orandi, lex credendi, which is often uh, poorly translated as praying shapes believing, uh, that we're more concerned with, um, with worship uh, and liturgy than we are with uh, doctrine and theology. Uh, and um, it's that, that misconception has been the bane of my ministry. Uh, and, uh, and one that I've tried to fight back against, because, of course, included in every version of the Book of Common Prayer has been uh, such things as the 39 Articles of Religion and uh, the Catechism and the Creeds. And, in fact, our canons in the Episcopal Church make it very clear that Episcopal doctrine uh, because uh, when I was ordained, I had to make a vow to uphold the doctrine and discipline of the Episcopal Church, that uh, Episcopal, the doctrine of the Episcopal Church is determined by the creeds and by extension the councils that produce those creeds, um, obviously with scripture first, scripture as our, as our, um, our primary or, or the scripture principle is foundational, but beyond that, the creeds. Uh, the Catechism in the Book of Common Prayer, and uh, though the 39 Articles of Religion no longer are binding on us, they are our guide for interpreting the Catechism when the Catechism is vague. vague. Uh, and what's important about this is that, yes, we've had some high-profile Episcopal bishops, particularly in the past, folks like Jim Pike in the 60s, who if you don't know his story, that's a pretty crazy story. More recently, folks like John Shelby Spong, uh, who uh, has written such books as Why Christianity Must Change or Die, and so on and so forth, that have really uh, been against the very doctrine that, that we vow to uphold. Uh, but because these books have become so popular, people take this as uh, representing the church rather than representing the views of this one person. And in fact, what I would say is not only is doctrine important, but especially so as we have grown in our liturgical resources, so we can no longer say, we, it can no longer be said that we have a common prayer in the way that we once did, that is one book to determine all of our liturgy. Uh, but also, um, I would say that some of the best theology being done right now, and this is obviously Protestant theology uh, because the Episcopal Church is Protestant uh, in that way. Uh, some of the best theology, Protestant theology being done today is by uh, Episcopalians and, um, and uh, Anglicans in terms of uh, members of the Church of England. So, uh, just to name a, a few really quick, and this is where I'm going to end, Pastor Lou, because uh, I can see you're getting antsy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> giggly. Kat, Catherine Sondreger, um, um, Sarah Coakley, uh, Catherine Pickstock, John Milbank, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, Catherine Tanner, uh, all of these are uh, Episcopal or Anglican theologians doing some of the best theological work and within the tradition of Orthodox, with a small O, Father Adam, Orthodox Anglicanism, 
uh, all of them doing that kind of work uh, that I think will shape the church in the future. So that's, that's the one that I really wanted to kind of lift up. All of those males had strangest feminine sounding names you were just talking about. I'm not well, familiar you know, with. You know, Father Adam, I know that the Orthodox won't uh, are, are misogynistic and will only <laughs> ordain will only ordain to the priesthood men. But clearly, there have been uh, theological thinkers who have been female in the orth. I mean, Macrina, the the Cappadocian's uh, sister, who Gregory of Nyssa says uh, was his greatest teacher. Saint Basil's uh, mom was also Macrina, the older. Yeah, there you go. So I mean, <laughs> the idea that that uh, that women might be teachers in Christianity goes back. I mean, it goes back as far as Saint Thecla, right? Right. <laughs> I was I was starting to giggle because in my in my little gray matter, I was starting to, to wait for Nick to say some of the best Episcopal theology or Anglican theology was <laughs> Nick's his own. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, let's that goes without saying, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> all right, let's let's jump from there from from your from your small O Orthodox to your big O Orthodox. Let's talk. Um, let's talk about the Orthodox Church and some misconceptions. So there's this misconception that uh, that you guys are the true church. Ah. Uh, <laughs> never changing. <laughs> to the exclusion of all others. Yes, you hit the nail right on the head. However, that's not a misconception. That is the, the dogma truth of... Uh, and you may take uh, Nick's taking a big uh, gulp. Written on a Western Mall. <laughs> well, I would... There actually are a couple of misconceptions that I think would, would we would do good to clear the air on. Some more like, I guess, minor stuff. I would like to... For, for those who may not be aware, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Um, the idea of icons. Icons are very big in the Orthodox Church, and there's a lot of misunderstanding in the West as to what they are. Is it like um, a lot of some people, you know, I mean, there was the whole heresy of iconoclasm, which is like the destroying of icons. Um, it was sort of boosted by this idea of like icons are idols. That's what some people uh, kind of understood it as. So I know that's not what the Orthodox Church thinks, but I would like to to get that kind of out there. Maybe start there. Yeah, like oh, the Orthodox uh, worship graven images. Um, you know, we're heretics <laughs> for worshiping graven images. Um, no, you're heretics for other reasons, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, nothing can be farther from the truth. Interesting that you talk about that today. This is uh, at least on the uh, revised Julian calendar, otherwise known as the new or wrong calendar uh, in Orthodoxy, um, the Feast of the Fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Second Nicaea, uh, where uh, Arius was condemned and where, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know the the the, uh, the restoration of the uh, veneration of the icons, which we celebrate also at the Sunday of Orthodoxy, which is the first Sunday of Lent uh, every year. Obviously, a movable feast. Um, but there was always a, a great distinction between the object of worship within uh, 
with iconography. You know, it, it, we, we may make icons uh, of any holy person because to recognize somebody as a saint is to recognize them as Christ. Christ took human form, therefore we can make a picture of him, uh, paint a icon of Christ. And anybody who the church has recognized as a saint has put on Christ. And therefore, to make, to make an image of anybody who is, is set apart, recognized, canonized, if you will, uh, is to make an icon of Christ himself. And by venerating the icon, it is not indeed latreia, so no idolatry. Latreia would be worship. Uh, in, uh, is that Greek, Father Nick, or is that, uh, is that Latin? That's Greek. Okay, I thought so. Um, I was almost positive, but I figured I'd get your, your the patina of Father Nick's knowledge uh, <laughs> on that one. Uh, it is not indeed latria, but it is veneration. Um, and it was not only recommendable, but it was imperative in Christian worship that we include the images of those who had put on Christ. Um, so there, yeah, you'll go into an Orthodox church, and if you're coming from the West, or a, or a tradition of the West, or even uh, somebody who is unchurched, in fact, the first time I walked, I mean, I grew up Roman Catholic, good old Irish Catholic, but I walked in the first time I walked into anything Orthodox, and I was like, them people is weird. They're kissing pictures, and I smell incense. I was used to incense, but uh, they were chanting, kissing images of, of, of saints. I was like, I have never seen that before in my life. Um, and well, I thought it was very strange. Catholics sometimes do it in their personal piety, so maybe it's just... Sure, sure. Yeah, like experience. granny standing uh, at the prayer corner or whatever and kissing a picture of the saint or a statue even, uh, you know, of a venerated saint would not be a un unknown thing. Or, you know, praying the rosary and then kissing the, the crucifix on the rosary maybe in a Catholic tradition, which is what the three of us grew up in. Um, that would not be... A, unusual thing but the, the specifically the actual painted images of, of of people um saints and such oh you guys pray to saints well only god's going to answer your prayers well quite true i mean no, true words have never been spoken there's one god and only one object well you guys worship mary well nothing again could be further from the truth uh we, we venerate the mother of god as uh, the the saint par excellence um and so you know when you talk about that as a misconception yeah it but it's also low-hanging fruit because it's easily uh, disputed mm -hmm. it's easily um uh refuted um and it one would either walk away from that with oh okay that makes sense or well, you're still a dirty idolater, you know, it, because it really, honestly, when we talk about misconception, it really depends on who's listening. That's true. Because if they're going to bring it up to you as a, <clears throat> I, I, I don't understand this. This appears to me to be what I see. Um, frequently, somebody's approaching you with listening, trying to respond and not to hear. Why do you do dot, dot, dot? Because that doesn't square with what I was taught but I would like to be uh, more informed or I would like to know why you do, if not for any other reason than to, to point out and redirect you to how I believe. But most of the time people are very like, tell me what you believe. In fact, I, I was driving Uber the other night or Lyft and 
some guy <laughs> i was playing tom waits on the radio which again that's an acquired taste it's my he's one of my like top three favorite performers but he he's he is sometimes difficult to stomach but the guy thought he was i was listening to christian music which i'd love to go back and inquire with him why he thought that was christian music if anybody's ever listened to tom waits it's definitely not christian music but he began to ask me why are we listening to christian music can we change the music this is terrible music <laughs> and uh you have this big cross dangling from your rearview mirror and you know that i'm offended by your christian music and your cross and i was like that dude that's tom waits unless he was praying in one of his songs which i seriously doubt uh that wasn't christian music um but uh we I, and i explained it was an orthodox cross a three-bar cross and uh he, he got to the point where he was like well, tell me what you believe and i started to recite the nicene creed <laughs> there you go uh and because the man was not asking me because he was truly curious. He wanted to um, refute what I believe simply by virtue of me being a Christian and him being a professed atheist. Uh, we also didn't have a lot of time left in the ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh boy, he's half drunk anyway. I don't know how far we're going to get. <laughs> Tell me what you believe. Like, well, I believe in the Father, you know, in uh, one God, all that, uh, the Nicene Creed. But, um, yeah, a lot of times when we talk about misconception, it has a lot to do with with uh, how someone is asking and with what spirit they're asking it. Do they want to have a, a misconception uh, resolved or do they want really to seek answers to, for understanding purposes? Um, but that I would not say is like one of the bigger under, mis misconceptions. Well, since we're on a... a time crunch i had one or two others that i wanted to go through but what in in your opinion is a um is one of the biggest misconceptions about the orthodox church um two of the easiest ones and they're they're quick uh one is oh so you guys are the ones that left the catholic church oh the the eastern catholics they you guys peeled off from from roman catholicism and made your own little thing in the east Nothing could be farther from the truth. And any study of history would tell you that, you know, Rome went out for cigarettes in a six pack one night and never came home. Um, and the rest of the church was like, uh, anybody seen Rome? It's been a while. Uh, you know, obviously that is a, a very uh, dumbed down way of saying it. But any, any, any strong reading, uh, true reading of, of history, there is very, nobody would dispute that the Orthodox Church is the original church. Um, and if and if they did dispute it, they wouldn't have a lot of meat to really sink their teeth into, uh, which is why I became Orthodox from the Roman Catholic Church because you know I was a good Catholic boy. Because uh, another, we all know that the Orthodox Church has never changed anything, right? Not a thing, never. It's the unchanging church. Disproven <laughs> <laughs> um, that many times. <laughs> what is what did it used to be? Catechumens depart right yeah y'all don't have to it's cold out there just just chill <laughs> um another one uh is uh give me a second i wrote it down i can't remember off the top of my head hold on uh here we go oh uh this is why possibly uh the most common one and it's kind of funny um 
when you tell somebody that you're Orthodox, if they've even got any conception of the Eastern Church, right? Like they've heard of that. And they'll say to you, oh, are you Greek or Russian? <laughs> and I'll look at them and I'm like, neither. And they look at you, all of a sudden their eyes glaze over. What? Well, I'm American. Okay, I know, but, but are you Greek or Russian? I'm Orthodox. Jewish then? Nope. And all of a sudden, you see the gears turning, even with, with very intelligent people who just don't know. You'll see the gears turning, and all of a sudden, like a, like a, a kind of like a, a micro panic, like they're like a, searching for context outside of ethnicity. <laughs> and, and they're like, I, I don't know, I don't know. It doesn't compute, doesn't compute. Like, you can hear the gears turning, but not catching anything, not finding any purchase. And then you kind of have to go on the, sometimes I, forgive me, I, feel, I find it tiresome sometimes, but like, you don't need an ethnic appendage to say orthodox. You, you know, it doesn't require the, you know, oh, oh yeah, I, I grew up with a kid and he, he went to the Russian church and they broke eggs at Easter. Actually, that's a Greek tradition, but, you know, they, they, they had Christmas on a different day. Um, and, and so what they'll always go, any, any, any purchase that they will get in their gears is, has to do with an ethnic uh, component. Oh yeah. They ate this kind of food at their, at their festivals. And I used to go to that Greek festival and, eat good Greek food and, and have good wine. And, oh, you guys, uh, your priests sometimes have kids. Well, that's that's at least true and, and not an ethnic thing. But um, when you tell them, it, it's an, sometimes it, it, it softens the blow if you're like Eastern Orthodox. They're like, all right, we can, we can handle Eastern Orthodox. It doesn't <laughs> have to be ethnic, but Eastern Orthodox means, okay, it's something different than than our Western context. Maybe that's what I should always go into it with is the, oh, I'm an Eastern Orthodox priest um, or an Eastern Orthodox Christian if I'm not dressed as a priest. Are you sure um, they're asking about the about which autocephaly uh, you're, uh, you're attached to? I mean, from, I mean, from whom uh, we gained our autocephaly? <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't, no, hold on. OCA doesn't have its own autocephaly, right? Oh, no, it does. Oh, it does. Oh, okay. Nobody recognizes it, but yes, we have. <laughs> Uh, the OCA gained cephaly uh, from Moscow in 1970. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, I smell a schism. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's... Um, that's actually kind of how, how that works in, in autocephalies being granted by, by any one body. Like, you'll have a series of 500 years where... Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, you're not really autocephalous, whatever. Like, but the like one, Ukraine? like what? Ukraine. Like Ukraine, yeah, exactly. Well, no, that's something quite different. Well, we could have a whole podcast on that. Um, anyway, like people, the OCA, in, in, for most of the, the pleroma of the, of the Orthodox Church, the OCA is regarded as a Russian daughter. Um, still because it's 50 years literally to the to the year it's 50 years and we're very very young but the autocephaly is granted in the way that that's always done and uh so my great-grandchildren or or their great-grandchildren may if the oca exists such as it is 
uh, may see uh, the rest of world orthodoxy recognizing the OCA as, as an autocephalous uh, indigenous orthodox church. <laughs> right now, they just see it as illegitimate daughter. <laughs> <laughs> they see us as putting uh, lipstick on a pig or somebody wearing their mommy's uh, pearls and, and, uh, and uh, high heels and playing dress up. <laughs> they, don't, All right. they don't have any question about the orthodoxy. It's the status of the autocephaly that people call into question. Okay, moving on from that image of Father Adam in high heels and playing dress up. <laughs> we are going to jump now, uh, again, due to the short leash of time, to um, Pastor Lou and the Lutheran tradition. <clears throat> let's, let's see some... Okay, I think... A good, I think a good misconception to start might be this this image of of Luther. In, I, this may be something that we're familiar with, but maybe folks on a popular level for you know our our hundreds of thousands of listeners that that'll be that'll be tuning in. Um, this idea of Luther maybe wanting to start his own church. Kind of thing. I think that's a pretty big misconception as far as Luther and Lutheranism. So, do you want to uh, kind of address that? Yeah, sure. It's pretty much a. I think church historians are pretty much on board with understanding it's not. I think people in the popular culture may not understand that. Um, there can be times in the, particularly from the Catholic, Roman Catholic, um, popular attacks on Luther that that can come up just as similar to the fact he only left the church so that he could have a wife have children um you know it's the same kind of thing it's a it's a lot of misunderstanding the the intention of it he was a he was a scholar at a a theologian at a university and he's trying to bring up a topic that is bothersome that he's noted some uh, problems related to purgatory and and he um, posts the thesis, which can some, you know, traditionally it was hammered on there. Some scholars suggest it was mailed. Father Nick suggests it was pasted. Let's just say it was popular. And, <laughs> and with the, with Gutenberg press, it went, you know, it spread very quickly because people agreed with a lot of the tenets. It's not the final stop on his theology. In fact, um, he kind of unpacks things more and gets rid of some things, changes some things, new understandings as time went on. But it's it's kind of the start for that. But the intention was never to break away. It, he really never broke away until he was actually excommunicated in 1520. And that would be December 10th, 1520. So that's a 500th anniversary for that coming up this year. The intention was to try to make reapproach, make amends, find some center, and that's clear from the Augsburg Confession. The tone it takes, how it's written, kind of you know, this is our theology. We're a lot like you. We're not like some of those radicals that kind of came off of that Reformation excitement. Can't we just kind of get along? That's that's when you read the Augsburg Confession, the, one of the early documents of the Lutheran tradition. That's what you find, and so within Lutheranism itself, ninety percent of Lutherans understand that they are a type of Christianity still in connection to others. 
So unlike, you know, Father Adam with their more um, specific understanding of what a Christian is, we're, we're still understand that other denominations are part of the church, even as we disagree with them. That doesn't mean there's never been any condemnations and cross condemnations and things like that, but that um, as a whole, the 90% of the churches of Lutheranism that are not confessional Lutherans that are not saying you have to agree exactly like the Lutheran Book of Confessions profess to be Christian, to be properly Christian, they, they're much more open to the resting in the disunity that is part of being human, part of being in the same in your, in your congregation. People to your left and right probably disagree on certain matters. The critical piece is what's what are what are the what are the the parts that can't be breached what you know how bad is bad and that's that's where you run into some running around in circles sometimes mm-hmm. yeah and uh, yeah I, I think you're you know right on the money there most scholars would would understand it that way but yeah again just kind of a popular level level thing now I personally am not as familiar with too many misconceptions about the Lutheran tradition. I'm I'm familiar with more about Luther himself, but I don't necessarily want to focus just on him. So, what are some what are some misconceptions um, that you're aware of as far as the Lutheran tradition goes? Every just wait for the Orthodox memes to come out <laughs> with Reformation uh, Day. That's uh, October 31st is Reformation Day. Or if we observe it on Sunday before, we call it Reformation Sunday. The the Orthodox Church has a tendency to kind of simplify into a into an infantile, facile level our theology. <laughs> and, and so, uh, but you kind of have to do that with memes anyway, right? At some level, that's why I don't, <laughs> I don't get like really bent out of shape on it. It's just it's it's just that it's just. It's unfortunately some people don't know any better and they start to buy into that. The um, the idea that Lutherans don't listen to the the church fathers or tradition, that we're totally separated from tradition, that you're just supposed to be able to go into your home and interpret scripture on your own. That's a that's a fallacy. Uh, the the theologically thinking Lutheran pastors are going to argue against that, and the theologically educated Lutherans are going to understand that that's not the case, that we discern things in community. That is clearly an argument of Martin Luther, and that community includes the entire church, and that includes the, the church fathers, and, and that explains why with those 90% of Lutherans that aren't strictly confessional, uh, usually often part of the Lutheran World Federation, they're willing to talk to anybody, even the Orthodox. We'll even talk to them and, and try to work on um, reconciliation and, and new understandings. And, and so I, I think that's probably the, the, the biggest issue um, because we understand that any individual can err. I mean, even, that's part of the theology is that uh, at the best, we're sinner saints. We're never going to be perfect. And so that includes with theology. And I think that actually brings brings something else to mind. Uh, again, it, it has a little bit more to do with, with Luther himself, but um, being the denomination that kind of bears his name, it is sort of like, I, I, I can see it being like an accusation. Um, 
one of the big things, you know, towards the end of Luther's life, his writings um, began to be very, very anti-Semitic and um, really, I mean, he was always kind of a bizarre guy and very outspoken and loud. Um, But actually, I think he and and Father Adam would have been really good friends. But (laughs) it got to be really, really just out of character towards the end. So what's what's how do you guys view slash live with that, I guess. Cause I mean, it's out there in yeah, writing, but like anti-Semitism. And yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, and especially as it relates to the, the Nazi movement in the, in the thirties and forties, yeah, the, the, the documents that most people point to are at the end of his life. Initially, he really was quite agreeable to the Jewish neighbors that he had. He argued for some rights as far as, you know, how they should be treated within the community that were really ahead of, you know, on the on the edge of his time moving forward, being more open. But he felt that with the excitement of the gospel, that why wouldn't they come to understand it better? I mean, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like Father Nick he has to keep explaining it because he, he, I'm explaining it so well. Why don't you understand it? You know, so and, and Martin Luther, being a scholar, was like that too. Well, obviously, it's you. You just don't understand what I'm getting at. By the end of his life, <laughs> being, being um, you know, tired, being uh, having some medical issues, uh, having been hunted down for a good hunk of his life by then, uh, he was what I call the cranky Luther. I mean, he was, he probably had some uh, issues by then that could be mental. And even that uh, particular document denouncing the Jewish people was one that was out of character for him. And so one of the things you look at from a historian perspective is that other contemporaries of his time, even those that were supportive of Luther never lifted those up. It just it just disappeared. It was not. It was something. I think at some level, his contemporaries understood this is a little a little bit wackadoodle. It's a little bit too much. Not to say that in the Middle Ages everyone was really warm and fuzzy towards the, their Jewish neighbors. There was issues for sure, but it was it was way above and beyond what they thought palatable. It seems that it was not considered a serious scholarly document or theological document in any way and it disappeared until the late 1800s with the excitement of darwinism this excitement within sociology and other pursuits of trying to find the higher level human and starting to discuss and look into how there's lower criminal forms of human and that fits really well with the Nazi kind of teaching. And then at the same time, you have some folks that are aware of that document and lift that up within that context and eugenics and all those kind of things. And really the Nazis, as they did with many things, including whether it's Christmas or other issues, the church as a whole, they try to adopt it and morph it, make it fit their own ends. Uh, they were never really Christian in the traditional sense, although there were Christians that certainly cooperated with them. The, the hardcore Nazis were not friends of the church. And, um, and, uh, and unfortunately, with that Luther name, it, for, particularly if you're uneducated and don't recognize the history of it, or if you have cultural bias, it was very easy for folks to buy into it. 
and support it. And uh, therefore, at least in our denomination, you know, we've made an apology for it. We try to teach about it. We try to be, you know, above board on it. And one thing to remember is Luther never wanted a church denomination named after himself. It's just like a Protestant being called Protestant was really projected onto us. We're the first Protestants protesting um, it came from. And, and so being called a Lutheran, someone following that Luther, Lutheran theology, which is a big part of our book of confessions, that was part of it. But there's still to this day, Lutheran bodies, to use that common parlance, that, that have a totally different name. They're called the Church of the Augsburg Confession. And in some ways, I think that's superior. I mean, it, it's, you know, with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America kind of is uh, drawing off of some of that colloquial understanding. But if they were to change our church name to the Augsburg Confession, something of the Church of the Augsburg Confession tomorrow or something, I'd be fine with that. That wouldn't bother me at all. Because because it's our, it's our faith understanding that's really what shapes and is the norm for us. We don't worship. Luther, we don't we we respect him. We um, might celebrate some of the things that God did through his life, but we're not blind. The vast majority can't say 100%, but we're not blind to his shortcomings, and there were many. Cool, sweet, sweet baby Nick. Do you mind if I jump in really quick? Uh, there's one thing I wanted to say, which is uh, since you raised the issue of, of Luther's writing uh, on the Jews and, and their lies, I think was the name of it. Yeah, sure. Just uh, just a couple of minutes, though. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, people like to throw that at, at, at the uh, feet of Luther, but the, the truth is anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, and really, uh, you might say that he was more of a his, his was more anti-Judaism than anti-Semitism. He wasn't talking about the Semitic race per se. He was talking about, um, you know, the Jews as, as a religious community. Uh, so it's more, it, more properly anti-Judaism. But either way, both of those, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, are really, uh, in some sense, the, the, the major sin of the church Catholic. That is to say, all, all Christians uh, through, through history, uh, the church has struggled with this sin. Uh, and we've really, in the wake of the Shoah or the Holocaust, have become more aware of it uh, and are, are trying to face it uh, with, uh, I think, a little bit more uh, honesty and, and integrity and, and trying to route it out of our churches. But it's not just Luther. It's, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's the whole church. Uh, the, the Russian Orthodox Church has had problems with this, with, with pogroms uh, in England uh, long before the English Reformation. Uh, all of the Jews of England were expelled from England. I mean, it's it, like 1200 or something, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's been an issue for the whole church. And the fact that Luther gets pinned with it, I think, is, is a little bit ridiculous. And the final thing on that is that Susanna Heschel, the daughter of the uh, famous 20th century rabbi, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, wrote a book called Aryan Jesus, all about the Deutsche Christians in Germany, the German Christians who kind of laid the ideological groundwork for the Nazis to come in. Uh, and though they made use of Luther, 
the Nazis themselves never cited uh, Luther and on the Jews and their lies. They didn't, because as Pastor Lou said, they weren't actually, Hitler was not actually interested in Christianity, except insofar as he could use it for his own purposes. And so, uh, so that she has argued that Luther was actually not a significant influence at the time of uh, the rise of the Nazis. On let me let me just clarify something you said that it's it's not that they they never used Luther. They did. There's you can you can find the the little bills that they handed out or quotes and things like that. It's that they came up with a lot of their own stuff on their own, yeah. drawing out of a cultural prejudice and bias and, and just evil within themselves. And, and that was a very easy way to serve it up. Right. right. They, they themselves had not come to their conclusions because they had read. No. Right. That's it, they were glad to find it and they used it. Yep. Well, I think these have been some good, uh, we, we covered a lot of ground actually. Um, in just about an hour or so. So it was kind of a lightning round. Uh, if you've been, if you've been listening in, hopefully we gave everybody some somewhat equal airtime. Um, but yeah, a better understanding of why everyone says that the Episcopal church like is like Catholic light. <laughs> because it tastes great. All the Jesus has the hassle. <laughs> I was going to say tastes great and less theology based on what father Nick said, <laughs> but I reject. Oh, geez. Um, my, my former brother-in-law, uh, he, um, he always said that, yeah, we're, we're like Catholic light. All the Jesus have to hassle. He was Episcopalian. Or Catholics who flunked Latin. (laughs) That's the other one that I've heard. Catholics who flunked Latin. (laughs) All right, guys, I have to be going to my class. And with Uh, that. I'm to become a Christian, will you? (laughs) I'll try. I'll try. Why you know, Anglicanism fix- is a gateway to orthodoxy 101. 101. All right. Um, who who is going to who's going to bless us out today? I think it's on Pastor Lou this time. I think I did it last time. Oh, did you? Okay. Father- then it's on Sweet Baby Nick. It's on Sweet Baby Nick. Okay, hang on. Hurry up, Nick. We don't have time for this. Oh, he's, he's getting ready for his class. I was just going to read the label on my beer for my closing uh, prayer. <laughs> I, uh, there's got to be a... Uh, I don't know. I don't have my prayers marked. Um, yeah, that's why you need that class. Yeah, I know. Because Here's we, know, a, uh, we know that you Anglican types only use your prayer book. That's it. You yep, yep. I don't know how to pray on my own. <laughs> Not like us good Lutherans and Orthodox. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here's a prayer for the universal church. Shorter. All right. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Always good to see you, fellas, but even better to hang out like yesterday. Oh, absolutely.
As always, thanks so much for tuning in and listening to the whole episode. If you made it this far, just to make you guys aware of something, next month, November, we will be approaching, we will be actually getting to one year of this podcast. So for us, that is going to mark the end of our first season. And coming up around that time, around Thanksgiving and Advent, we will be taking a small hiatus in between our in between seasons one and two. We will be back, but we're going to take a break for Advent because Father Nick is going to be a dad for the first time around that time. It's going to be crazy with the Christmas season, so there's no guarantee we'll all be able to get together, especially with our services and just the general craziness that uh, the Christmas season can bring. So um, be aware of that. Around that time, we will be taking a brief break just to prep for season two. But until then, we will continue to bring you new episodes. And don't worry, we'll let you know. We'll keep you updated when all of this is happening. Till then, keep tuning in every two weeks. We'll do our best to get you as best content as we possibly can. And we will see you all next time.